Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, I'm taking a quirky story from Ron Dennis and looking at how it might change the way we view the journey of our lives, plus how we could reframe one of life's biggest questions to change the outcome potentially for all of us. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. As ever, thank you so much for listening right now, but also thank you to all those people who took the time to send me a message, to follow or subscribe to the podcast, or to leave me a review in the podcast stores. It means the world to me, and as a token of my appreciation, I've decided to start today's episode by reading one of those out. So Aaron Harper 41 very kindly left me a review you in the Apple Podcast Store together with a five-star rating. Thank you for that. But I thought I'd read it out to you as a little reminder of why I do this podcast, because that's exactly what it was to me. He says, hi, Mark, I love your podcast because I always find something to learn in them. I've been able to take your lessons into my personal life and into my professional life as a football coach, as well as using the podcast to help my wife to set up her own business. I really enjoy your style and podcast structure, which I've also used to help me with my own F1 podcast. I always feel as though we, the audience, are there with you. Your stories are amazing. Your motto is inspirational. Thank you for your incredible work. So thank you, first of all, Aaron. That's an amazing review. It really is exactly why I do this podcast, for messages like that, to know that in some small way, I am helping to inspire perhaps a different way of thinking that might then lead you on to a more successful train of thought, to bringing some ideas to life that may otherwise have been left dormant. It's that kind of inspiration that just kickstarts a new thought process is the very reason I started this podcast. And that's my message here. None of these things that any of you go on to achieve are because of this podcast. They're because of you. My job here is to make you believe that you can achieve more than you might otherwise think to let you know that you can be the successful person you aspire to be. Because the people who have had success in this world, particularly in the world that we all love and we share a love for, the world of Formula One, well, they're just like you and me. There is no major secret. There is nothing magical about it. They are people like you and me. They just have a belief and a resilience to overcome the challenges that life throws at them, to get up when they get knocked down. If you have that relentless pursuit, that relentless drive, and inside all of that, a belief that you will get there the chances are higher, much higher, that you will in fact get there. So Aaron Harper 41, thank you so much for the review in the Apple Podcast Store. And he signs off this, his little review by saying, you can find my own F1 podcast at five underscore red underscore lights on Twitter. So listen, if any of you want to check out Aaron's podcast, I highly recommend it. Five red lights is what it's called at five underscore red 
underscore lights if you want to go and check him out on Twitter. So thank you. And thank you to every single one of you that took the time to do something like that. It genuinely makes a massive difference to me. And I think, look, if you enjoy that, I'd like to read some more of those out as we move through the coming weeks. So keep them coming, please. Uh, This week, we've got a few things to cover. I have had... Really, I've had a wonderful week this week. It's been one of the the weeks that I've been looking forward to for a long time because I had a few things lined up that I knew were going to be good. They were going to be exciting. They might be inspirational. They were also relaxing at times. They were enjoyable. There were things that have been in my schedule that I've been looking forward to. And this was the week they happened. And out of that week came a number of topics. I could literally talk for about five hours this week on the things that have happened to me this week and some of the lessons and insights that I could pluck out of those things to share with you. But I've got to keep it to around about an hour. So you'll see them pop up in other podcast episodes, I'm sure, further down the line. But essentially, I want to pick on a couple of different topics. The first of those came from a sort of impromptu meeting with a couple of ex-McLaren colleagues that I managed to squeeze in on Tuesday evening. I got home from work, raced down to our local pub, and there are two other guys that I haven't seen for years and years and years. And we decided we should get together and catch up on old times. And that's exactly what we did. We talked about our different experiences inside McLaren because we all had very different jobs. One was a strategist, one was uh, in the marketing department, and of course me on the mechanical engineering side. Um, We all had very different perspectives of what life at McLaren was like. But what we all agreed on was that the things that we've learned from that time have gone on to shape the future careers that we've had since leaving the sport, but all crucially in very different ways. We're all working in very different industries now, but at a pretty high level and doing things that are a million miles on the face of it away from what we did before. But actually, when you delve into it, they're interlinked. They're very closely linked in other ways to what we did before and the things that we all learnt from that time at McLaren. And the thing we agreed that has set us all on these different paths, but connects us all is our inherent attention to detail that we all have. That all came essentially from Ron Dennis in the beginning and Ron's methods, Ron's way of thinking around the way he built McLaren. Attention to detail was at the very, very heart of it. And one of my former colleagues told a really interesting story, a story that I thought I'd share with you because it resonated with me as being a really good one and can spark a a bigger conversation that I think we could explore here and hopefully gain a number of things from. This was the chap that was in the marketing department. Now, he talked about a story where him and his marketing team had convinced Ron Dennis that they needed to put a room in our factory that would be a room, almost like a presentation room, a room that they could bring clients in or potential clients in to pitch their ideas to, to inspire them to invest or to partner with the team. But this room would be decorated with memorabilia. It would have history of the team. It might show off some of the latest technology in display cabinets. They would have presentations on screens that they could then show these prospective clients, prospective partners, and hopefully inspire them to make the decision to come on board and join the team. And there'd been a conversation or a series of conversations to convince Ron Dennis that this this room was needed. And eventually Ron had said, look, yeah, fine, go ahead, do it. Here's some budget. You go ahead and you do what you need to do because it sounds like a good idea. And off they all went and they, they found the room, dedicated a room to it, 
stripped that room all the way back to its bare bones, redecorated it in the most meticulous fashion, as you can imagine. They're trying to impress clients, of course, when they enter this room, they want it to be a wow moment. They want them to have an impression of McLaren that almost knocks them off the chair with a level of detail they've just simply never seen before. That's what McLaren was all about. And so you can imagine this room had to be perfect. There was a huge amount of time and effort of focus put into making sure this room was simply as good as it could be. And it was amazing. It was incredible. The tiles immaculately lined up, millimetre, fractions of a millimetre, perfect. Unique pieces of McLaren's history, race suits from some of the most famous drivers in the world, crash helmets, trophies, pieces of memorabilia that you simply could not find anywhere else. This was a special place and it shouted McLaren through and through. You couldn't help but be impressed when you walked in the door. And when this room was finally finished and everybody was happy, and that took some time because don't forget to impress Ron Dennis with attention to detail, well, that takes something pretty special. So lots of adjustments were made. Lots of people came in, gave second and third impressions of what the, what the finished room looked like. And then things were tweaked even more. Nothing was left to chance. And then eventually, the guys in the marketing department, my colleague, who I was in the pub with the other night, had to go and get Ron Dennis and went over to Ron's office and said, look, Ron, we finished the room. We want you to come and have a look at it. They were very proud of what they had achieved. They were so utterly confident that Ron would be impressed that they wanted him to see it. They wanted his seal of approval. They wanted to impress him. And so he went over, Ron, can you come and see the room? And Ron said, look, I'm really sorry. I don't really have time right now, but I utterly trust you guys. He said, you know, I know you will have done a great job. And the marketing guy said, yeah, but Ron, please, you need to come over and have a look just, just for five minutes. Just come and have a look at it. We, we're so happy with it. We're so impressed with it. We want you to see what the client is going to see when they come into that room. We want you to appreciate the levels that we're going to to try and entice in this new investment, these new partnerships, these new clients into our world. We're wowing them with the kind of attention to detail that you have instilled in all of us, Ron. Please just come and have a quick look at it. And eventually, after persistent persuasion from my colleague in the marketing department, Ron eventually looked at his watch and said, OK, listen, I'll come and have a quick look at it, but I've only got a few minutes. He said, give me five minutes and I'll see you there. And my colleague said, thank you, Ron. We really appreciate it. You're not going to be disappointed. In those five minutes, my colleague ran back to the room, made sure last few finishing touches were ready. Everybody sort of stood to attention waiting for Ron. But Ron didn't go straight to that room. Ron went from his office downstairs outside into the car park and came in through the main doors of the factory, walked his way through the entrance hall, had a look around along the corridor, came up through the lift into the floor where this room was, walked along the corridor to that room where he was met by a welcoming committee from the marketing department. Big grins on their faces, chests puffed out, really proud of the room they're all now stood in together. And they said, Ron, what do you think? And Ron paused for a moment and he said, you know, when you come into the factory, you know, downstairs through the main doors, and they were like, yeah, but I mean, Ron, what about the room? He said, well, that, you know, when you come in through those doors, he said, uh, on the right hand side, there's a little display cabinet, isn't there, with some McLaren bits, some technology on display. And they were like, yeah, yeah, okay. 
He said, well, that cabinet, that's got dust on the shelves. And they were like, okay, well, okay, Ron, well, we can get that sorted out. What do you think of the room, though? What do you think of this? Look at what we're in. He said, uh, you know, when you walk along the corridor here, just this last hundred metres, you walk along the corridor towards this room. He said, you know, there's a collection of pictures on the wall there on the right hand side. And they were, yeah, I know, Ron, but come on, what about the room? What is it about the pictures? He said, well, those pictures, they're, they're all in slightly different frames. They're not the same. They're different sizes. And they said, Ron, what about the room? What about this room? And Ron said, guys, you've got to understand the room might well be great, but it's the journey that really matters. It's the journey to get to the room that is the most important thing. And of course, what Ron was talking about in that moment was the journey that those prospective partners and clients would have taken to get to that room. But what it really means, of course, is the bigger picture, the bigger meaning in all of that, in that the full journey, the full experience is what has to be given the same level of attention as the destination that we're going to end up in. Whether that's prospective clients, whether that's us as a Formula One team talking about the Grand Prix, we can't just focus on the race weekend. We have to focus on all of the planning, the preparation, the journey to get to the race weekend. It's all just as important as each other. One doesn't work without the other. If one's not up to standard, it lets down the other. Ron went outside of the factory in those five minutes to experience the full journey that these prospective clients or partners would be taking before they eventually arrived at that room. And yes, Ron has ridiculous levels of detail, but he spotted a number of things on that journey that weren't up to the exacting McLaren standards that everything should be. And he saw it, he noticed it, it jumped out at him because the standards elsewhere were so high. If it jumps out to Ron, just maybe, just maybe it would jump out to that client. It might lower that wow factor just by a tiny amount, by 1%. Maybe they wouldn't be quite as wowed as they would have been if everything was just right. If the same level of attention had been put on the journey those clients will take through the building before they get to the room that had all the attention lavished upon it. We must have all experienced something similar. I have been to fancy hotels where the hotel room is fantastic. Details like the corners of a toilet roll being folded over, like a little name tag next to the bed with a welcome message to it, little chocolates being left on your pillow. But if the lift is dirty, or if the carpets aren't cleaned on the corridor down towards that room, if the key doesn't work when you get into that room, there's all of these things that are part of the journey and part of the bigger experience. By the time I get to my hotel room that might have a fancy chocolate on the pillow, that moment, that impact of that fancy chocolate has been diluted just a tiny amount because of a couple of things that were slightly subpar on the way there. And if you think about that as, the, as a bigger picture, if you think about that in relation to our lives, it's the same thing, isn't it? Destination is something that should be a result of a wonderful journey to get there. It shouldn't be the sole focus in our lives. How many times do we focus our goals on a single destination, a single tangible object or experience or achievement? If we're so focused on the thing that's at the end of that journey, how on earth can we possibly maximise the journey? 
Now, when the three of us were recounting this story, this conversation with Ron the other night, of course, we chuckled amongst ourselves. We laughed about it because it was so Ron Dennis. But we all agreed that, of course, he was absolutely right. He was spot on. Of course he was. Obviously, what Ron was trying to point out, going to great lengths to point out back then, was that that moment when these prospective partners walked into that room and they had their wow moment of seeing this incredible space as the doors opened in front of them. That destination that they arrived at was actually just a tiny part, a very small part, of the overall impact that McLaren would have on these people in terms of their first impressions of our business. The much bigger part was the journey to get to that room. They'd be walking down corridors, past cars, past display cases, through this incredible building that was the MTC, hopefully being wowed all the way through. The journey was a much greater part of that spectacle than that moment, that fragment of time as the doors opened and hopefully they go wow. And that is such a metaphor for life, isn't it? The journey always takes longer than the time we spend at the destination. When you climb a mountain to get the incredible views at the top, the views are fleeting, whereas the journey, the struggle to get there will have taken you so much longer. Anything we achieve in life takes so much longer to work our way towards the point where we have the achievement. We celebrate achievements with awards and parties and big pats on the back. Yet those moments, the big moment of getting the award, how do you think an Oscar winner feels? They get on stage for that big moment they might have dreamt of their entire life. The moment they get presented an Oscar. It's over in a flash. But of course, it took them years and years and years to get to that point. The journey took way longer than the moment when they feel like they've arrived because they're getting presented an award on stage in front of millions of people. We use the same analogy for pit stops in Formula One. The pit stop is over in a flash, a couple of seconds. The bit that people see when they switch on their television sets and you ask them, what is, what's a pit stop? They say it's a two-second moment where the guys burst out of the garage and change the wheels and tyres in these staggering speeds. It's over in a flash. For me, that's not a pit stop. That is the tiniest part of what really makes up a pit stop. Because long before those two seconds happen, there is a journey that's months long that has thousands upon thousands upon thousands of practice pit stops. There is research and development going into designing and manufacturing equipment, process optimization, physical training. So much has gone into those pit stops to make sure that that two seconds you see when you turn on your television set on a Sunday afternoon is as good as it can be. And my point in all of this, and Ron's point, is that if we don't lavish the attention on the journey and only focus on the destination, it will never, ever be as good as it could and should have been. Now, I'm sure that loads of you will be able to relate to this kind of thing. The customer service industry, for me, is one of the worst offenders, or certainly one of the most obvious offenders, where the product might have so much care and attention put into it, the end product, but actually the journey to get there may well not. How many times, I'll tell you what's a great example of this, is hire cars. 
The amount of times that I travelled to a foreign country having booked my hire car before I left, I did it online. I went through a, an extended form, a long form, putting in all of my details, everything that you would need to rent a hire car driving license details, passports, all of my information, contact information. I mean, everything that you could possibly think of, I filled the whole lot in online before I left. And yet, when I get off the plane and I go to the hire car desk in my destination country, it seems like without fail, the customer service agent sat behind the desk has to fill in the exact same form and ask me all of those same questions and then manually input that information. It drives me mad. If ever an industry's primed for disruption, it must be that one. I mean, sure, many of you must have had that same experience. <laughs> the journey before I get into my hire car seems protracted, seems drawn out. It seems unnecessary from a customer perspective. So no matter how good the hire car, no matter how clean it is or how fresh smelling it is or how nicely presented it might be, by the time I eventually get the keys and get in it, I'm probably a bit frustrated with the whole process. That's the journey letting down the destination. So in terms of advice when it comes to businesses or organisations, it's always to focus the same, if not more, attention on the process or on the journey that one of your customers or clients will take long before they ever get to one of your end products or the service that you're going to end up providing them, the destination. They are in your care from the moment they land on your website or walk through the front doors of your office. What impression does it give off? What's the level of customer service like from your very first interaction? Are you so focused on the product that actually the journey to get there might be slipping? And you'd be amazed how many big organisations have exactly that problem. And it's actually a relatively easy one to fix. It's just a mindset change. It's easy to focus on the end goal or the end product. It's the glory moment, isn't it? It might be the thing that your company's known for, even famous for. It might be the very reason these customers came to you in the first place. It probably is. But their impression of your company, their lasting impression, the thing that decides whether they potentially come back or not, will be built up of every single little detail along the way. There's an amazing book that I read recently. It's called Four Seasons, and it's about the Four Seasons hotel chain written by Isidore Sharp, the founder of that very hotel chain itself. It's an amazing business. He's an amazing guy, a little bit Ron Dennis-like, and his story in this book is remarkable of how he drills down into every single little detail and how he knows how much those little details matter. Sometimes a customer may not even be able to pick up on them if you ask them which details stood out to them. But perhaps sometimes that's the very point because people often pick out the details that weren't so good, the things that let down their journey or their experience. And if you can avoid somebody remembering some of those, maybe you've done a good job. Of course, in our own lives, our personal lives or our professional lives on a personal level, the same principle applies. I mean, life is quite literally one long journey. And whatever we think our destination or our various destinations along the way are, goals that we've set ourselves, if you're young, setting out on a career or hoping to achieve your dream job, if that dream job is your destination, the journey to get there is something that needs massive amounts of care and attention, of focus, of attention to detail. 
details like getting your CV right, get it presented in the right way, like turning up for your first job interview in the right manner, dressed correctly, being punctual, being on time, being open and polite and engaging with your prospective employer. These little details, when focused down to almost forensic levels, can make a big difference. They are your first impression. And they're the impression that gets left behind once you have left that job interview. And when these people are discussing you as a potential employee, whether or not you're right for that role after you've long gone, it'll be those details that help to formulate the opinion which could just get you that job. And getting that job could just help you and set you on your path towards getting your dream job. Details matter so, so much all the way along the line. Sometimes we might have to do a job that we don't necessarily love or we didn't particularly want to have because it might be a stepping stone onto something better in the future. Perhaps we just need to do that out of necessity. If you've got to spend six months, a year, years even, maybe longer, In a job that you don't necessarily see as your dream job, you can openly hate that job. You can become completely disengaged. You can give only 50% of yourself to it because in your mind, you're bigger than that. You're better than that. You're on a path to greatness and this is just a little bit demeaning for you. Or you can see that as a part of the journey. If you have to spend six months in that place before you eventually start moving on up the ladder towards where you want to get to, those six months are a crucial part of your journey. And apart from anything else, six months is a long period of time. Six months going into a job you hate openly every single day will drag you down, can easily knock the motivation out of you, can actually destroy the rest of your journey to that point you want to get to. So if you manage to embrace that as part of the journey, if you find a way to enjoy it, to be the very best at whatever it is you're doing, to go in and find ways to improve on your process, to be better every single day, even if it's a job you don't particularly like, zone in, give it the detail, give it the focus, be the best person that's ever done that job role. The skills that you pick up along the way, on the journey towards whichever destination you're heading for are all valuable. The experiences you have all contribute to being the person who eventually ends up at the destination. It shapes that person. It moulds that person. It contributes to that person being the very best they can be at that point some way further down the line. If you've wasted six months moaning, grumbling, only paying half attention, it doesn't really add very much to you as a person. It probably drags you down. It probably even drags the people around you down. Who have you met along the way on that journey that might remember how you were at that time? Perhaps you'll meet them again in the future. What kind of impression will they be left with of you? It's easy to look at the people in a role like that, that you don't like, that you never wanted, and say, well, I'm never going to see these people again. But just what if there's another person on a similar journey to you also making a brief stopover in a job they didn't particularly want? Three years, five years down the line, maybe you'll cross paths again. What kind of impression did you leave? Did you make on that person who could end up being in an influential position in the industry that you eventually want to get into? Who knows? It might seem like a long shot, but you never know who you're going to meet, when you're going to meet them and when you might meet them again. Leaving the right impression 
is so valuable. And that only comes from attention to detail in every single thing that you do. I was telling one of my colleagues in this when we met the other night about one of my jobs that I had way back when I was a kid, long before the days of Formula One. And it was one of the worst jobs I think I've ever had. But I somehow found a way to try and embrace it and take something from it because it was part of the journey. Of course, I wasn't seeing it like that back then. But when I look back, that's probably what I did. This job was turning up to appointments that had been made for me at either companies or at people's houses and then bringing one of the world's most expensive vacuum cleaners for me to then make a pitch to try and sell. £1,750 was the cost of this vacuum cleaner. Crazy. I mean, this is, we're talking about 20 years ago here as well. But whilst I didn't enjoy the job very much at all, whilst I hated standing up in front of people, having to pitch and rattle off this whole spiel that had been prepared for me about this vacuum cleaner that, quite frankly, I had very little love for anyway, it also gave me some of the skills that today I absolutely rely upon. Skills that I had no idea I was gaining back then or how I might possibly use them in the future. But today I stand up sometimes in front of thousands of people at huge corporate events talking about my life in Formula One and things like this, the things that we can learn from it. They can be terrifying, but I've found a way to enjoy those now. I've found a way to cope with the pressure of thousands of eyes looking at me. One of the things I found much, much harder than standing on a stage in front of 5,000 people is standing in a boardroom in front of five people, the executive committee from some company, where you've got five pairs of eyes staring at you from the other side of a table when you speak. That can be even more daunting than 5,000 people in a great big arena or auditorium. But what occurred to me whilst we were chatting the other night about these kind of things was that those experiences I had as a 15 or 16-year-old kid turning up at people's houses unannounced, people I didn't know, staring at me across a room while I rattled off this long spiel, was that I was building self-confidence. I was learning to engage with an audience. And whilst in the beginning I hate it, I was terrified, I was shaking like a leaf, eventually, during that period of my life, I began to embrace it. I began to realise that, look, this is my job, this is what I'm doing at the moment. So I can either go there and I can be terrified, I can just get through it as quickly as possible and get out. But first of all, I'm not going to sell any vacuum cleaners that way, or very unlikely. But secondly, if this is my life right now, I might as well find a way to be good at it, which was the way I tried to approach most things. And so I started to hone my skills. I started to take advice from people. I began to make eye contact deliberately with these people, whereas before I might have been glancing around the room nervously. I forced myself to engage. And then, of course, my talk became more engaging. And these were all skills that began to build up and become part of me. Today, of course, I use those things. Today, I am a speaker for a living. I like to think quite a good one. And it's those skills, at least in part, way earlier down my journey that have contributed to me being successful in the field that I am today. The journey matters. All of the things that happened on the journey mattered. Good and bad, we learn from them all. We take something from them all. And we have to embrace that journey. 
There is no point skipping through it. It's wasting valuable time. It's wasting some of your preparation for the moment when you finally arrive at that destination, when you might need those skills, when you might need to draw back on that experience. As Ron Dennis said all those years ago, it's all about the journey. The journey matters. We often live in a world today where the journey is the bit that many people want to skip over. We want instant gratification. We want to leap ahead to get to the destination without having the journey in the middle. People don't realise how important, how crucial, how valuable the journey actually is. We celebrate today overnight successes. In fact, we create overnight successes. Saturday night television is populated with talent contests where we take typically kids, we put them onto a stage in front of millions of people, and then we judge them at their talent. We judge them, we let them sing, we let them perform, and we judge them in a snap moment. And from that snap judgment, somebody decides whether or not they should be catapulted straight to the destination of being a pop star or a performer. They skip out the whole part of the journey, which you could argue is necessary, where they gradually hone their craft. They gradually learn the skills to deal with fame, with the accolades that come with that, but also with the disappointments when things go wrong. The criticism, the demands on their time and potentially their newfound fortune. They essentially arrive at the destination ill-prepared, ill-equipped to deal with it. And that industry is littered with disastrous stories around that because of that. Sometimes we only celebrate the moment that we reach the destination, whereas actually, in my opinion, we should be celebrating the achievements along the way, the journey. We should be celebrating the milestones. I've talked about this many times before. Every moment along our journey contributes either directly or indirectly to the big success that we might eventually get in the end. How many times do we publicly celebrate when a young entrepreneur finally sells their company for big money, hundreds of millions of dollars? They've become an overnight success. They're now wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. They're an overnight success. They're not an overnight success, though, are they? Because as the saying goes, it can take 10 years to become an overnight success. It's all of the work that went in long before the moment you sold the company, before you reached your destination and became rich. It was everything that came before that that made you the success in the end. I had another conversation with a very good friend of mine, and you know who you are because I know he'd be listening to this. Uh, I had a good couple of days away and we got in some good deep chats and he was having some issues with, with work. He's an entrepreneur who built a company from scratch over many years to a point where it became valuable and he managed to sell the company in the last couple of years. Very successful story. Off the back of that sale, he has now launched a brand new company. So he's a serial entrepreneur. That company is a fledgling company, a startup in its early phase. And like most startups do, he's going through various challenges. He's got some tough hurdles to overcome. And we were having a conversation around this where he was starting to doubt himself just a little bit, perhaps worry about the future, about what the future might hold. Could this new business be as successful as the last one or might it fail? And if it fails, goodness me, well, he's the CEO. It's on him. He's committed a substantial amount of money and time in making this work. He's gone all in on it because he fully believes in the idea. 
one of the things that's different this time around is that he's got people in his personal life relying on him. He's got a partner. He's got children. He has to support that family with this business. And his concerns were that if it falls apart, what on earth would he do? The conversation that we had around this centred around the journey that he'd been on to get to this point where he is today. A journey that not many people could argue wasn't a successful one. Just look at his past business. A journey that has thrown so many challenges his way and yet he overcame them. A journey that has developed so many skills that he didn't have when he first began that journey all those years ago. That journey has helped to build a can-do attitude. It's helped to build resilience, determination. All the things that made the past business a success were a result of the journey that came before. And so even though he might be starting a new business, it feels like a new journey. It's a new stage of that journey, but actually it's the very same journey that he started all those years ago. It's exactly the same journey. We're all on the same journey we started way, way back in time. We're just in different phases of it. And so the skill sets, the mindset that he developed to make the first company a success are still there. They're all still part of him. They're all still part of what I'm sure will make the next business a success too. And even if it doesn't, even if this next business falls apart, if the cash flow problems they're suffering with end up sinking the ship, whilst it'll be heartbreaking, it'll be devastating for him and his colleagues involved, it won't be the very end of the journey. It won't be the place where it all comes to a grinding halt. Because everything that happened on that journey, all the components that have made him a success in his life so far, will continue to make him a success. Those elements that make a great entrepreneur will still be there. It may be that he'll have another idea and he'll develop that idea to the point where he's 100% convinced, has 100% belief in that idea. And then he'll commit to the same level that he's committed on his previous two projects. And he'll go again. And even if he doesn't go down that path, the components that make him up, that have made him a successful human being in business and in life, will still be there to make him a success long after the current project comes to an end. And so, like Ron Dennis says, it's the journey that really matters. It's the journey where all the learning happens. It's where the experience is built. And when we look back on the journey in moments of adversity today, it's that journey that can provide us with moments of evidence that we can now draw upon to back ourselves when we come up against a big challenge. The journey lasts so much longer than the moment when we arrive at the destination. So if we go through our lives doing things we don't enjoy for reasons that we don't believe in, suffering, not committing, not maximising the learning potential from that journey, we'll eventually reach our destination. And you know what? It might be amazing, but it'll be over in a flash. And you will look back on that long journey of life and wonder whether you really got the most out of it. Did you really maximise your days? Did you make the most of the majority of your life? Or was it all done in some vain attempt to reach a mystical destination which you may or may not have ever achieved? Right now, speaking of life's journey, I went to see somebody this week, a very special person to me who's 
at a much earlier phase in their journey. It's my daughter. My daughter is currently in Spain, in Madrid, uh, studying Spanish. She's on the third year of a four-year degree, and I haven't seen her since Christmas. I had the opportunity this week, because I was speaking at an event in Barcelona, to fly down to Madrid for an evening and take her out for dinner and go for some drinks and generally catch up. And it was amazing. And we talked about her life in Spain, which she's really loving. She's working in a school right now. She's loving life generally. We talked about her coming back. She's coming back to Manchester next year to finish off the last year of her degree. And then she says, you know, I might want to come back to Madrid. I love it here. And I made the mistake, and it is a mistake that I now realise I made, a mistake that I'm sure many parents, that many school teachers make, that many people in life make, because I asked her a question that I should never have asked her in this way. I said to her, what do you think you want to be when you've finished your university course? And she paused for a while before pondering her answer. And she said, you know what? One of the things I've realized since living in Spain for the last eight months or so is that in Spain, there seems to be less pressure for students to finish university and immediately jump into the rat race, pick a career, go for it, get on the ladder as quickly as possible. In England, she said, that was definitely the case. My teachers at university would be starting to think about careers, be starting to encourage me to apply to organisations in the real world to think about internships and post-grad courses and getting onto the first step of that ladder. She said, you've just asked me what I want to be. I've got no idea what I want to be. She said, I'm just figuring out who I want to be once I finish my university course. In terms of what I want to be, I have no idea. And I immediately stopped and thought about the question I just asked her and how I'd phrased it and realised I had made this huge mistake. What I'd done in asking her what she wants to be is essentially ask her which box she's going to drop into once she exits the university system. That's the terrible question. It's a question that we ask our kids as a society in general. Our education system offers up career choices which are very clearly defined in boxes, the traditional careers, and we expect our students to naturally fall into one of those. We give them very little scope or certainly very little encouragement to think outside of those boxes and come up with whatever they want their life to look like. We put pressure on them to do it now, quickly, before time runs out, before somebody else jumps in ahead of you. And we make them feel like whatever choice they make, whatever this big decision is that they've got to make right now, that decision is where they're going to be for the rest of their lives. They're going to jump into a career which will define the next 40 years of their lives. I mean, what nonsense is that? What my daughter said was she hadn't yet found or discovered a career or a job title, a label that would suit her for the rest of her life. Nothing that particularly grabbed her attention, nothing that fitted her values together with her skill set, with her ambition. She hadn't found that out yet. What she said was she's working on understanding herself. She's trying to figure out the type of person that she wants to be. And after that, she'll find a way to put those skills and her personality, her characteristics, her values, her ambition, all of those things into something that she would like to have a bigger meaning or a bigger purpose in the world than this series of labels that had been presented to her 
by the university careers guidance. And of course, she's absolutely right. If I am employing somebody to come and work in my business, in my company, what I want to know is who that person is, not what they are, not what label they may have had in a previous job. I want to know who they are. I went to do some consultation at a company a couple of years ago, and they asked me to sit in on four interviews, an interview process for four candidates for the same job. And I just sat observing in the background, they wanted some feedback on the process. And at the end of those four interviews, when I got called in at the end of the day, and we discussed what had happened, which was the best candidate, why they might be the best candidate, who brought what to the table... The one thing that I'd said at the end of this process, my biggest piece of feedback was that over the four interviews, you found out very little about the individual, about the person. By far the bulk of any job interview should be trying to understand the character, the personality, the human being that sat opposite you. You can see what they've done in a professional sense because their CV lists it all. You know what their job title was, you know what many of their responsibilities were, you know where they've worked. You can phone up and get references from those people if you want them. But you need to put most of that time and effort into finding out who sat across the table from you. Because it's those details, it's that character that you've got to work out if they're going to fit into your team, into your organisation. Are they going to work with you, with the people around you? Do you feel like they've got what it takes to make it work, even if they haven't got all of the skills that you need right now? You can train for those as long as they're the right personality, as long as they've got the right attitude, the right mindset. And to find that out, you need to start asking the personal questions. You need to start understanding who they are. What kind of character are you? What do you do in your spare time? What's your family life? What's your history? What sort of things do you do outside of work? What kind of books do you read? What kind of movies do you like? What's your favourite music? Just get a conversation going as if you were speed dating somebody in a bar. How do you get to learn the most about that person in this short period of time that you have? And this company that I was working for had asked very little about that. It was all about what did you do in the last role? What was your biggest responsibility? What were, you know, these questions that were all technical based around the role itself not based around the person, which is what we should be doing more of, which is what I should have asked my daughter. Who do you want to be? Not what do you want to be? I've talked on this podcast before about the impact of labelling people, about job descriptions and job titles that restrict people to the confines of whatever that job title is. We went through a conscious process at McLaren to free up that process, to take away what we called the boxes, to enable people to think outside the box. We've got to take away the box. This idea of de-restricting where people sit in an organisation, to allow people to cross-pollinate, to exchange ideas, to put forward questions, to question somebody somewhere else in a business about how or why they do a certain thing. In fact, I talked a couple of weeks ago about how at McLaren, we had absolutely no appreciation of our garage cleaner and what he might be seeing, what perspective he might have on the work that we were doing, and therefore what he could offer us if we just embraced that, if we allowed allowed a conduit, allowed a method or a process to get information flowing from every element, every person in the organisation. Everybody has something to offer, most of which 
will fall outside of whatever their job title is. By labelling people as a thing, you restrict them to being that thing. You constrict people's mindsets. People stop thinking outside of the box. They stop thinking about things that don't fall under their little remit. Yet they might have a lot to offer. The best teams, the best companies, the best organisations are those who are made up from the best people. Not just the best people for the job title that's written on their business card or the label that sits on the front of their desk but the best people for that team or for that organisation. The best people that fit into that organisation. A team is just that. It's a group made up of individuals. And the very best teams are made up of the best individuals who can work well together. How are you knowing if those people can work well together before you've employed them if you don't know who they are? And how on earth can we know who they are unless they know who they are themselves? Society and the system right now encourages those people, those young people, to jump into a system where they're on a treadmill running as fast as they can from that moment on. Sometimes they never quite figure out who they are because they haven't got time to. They've skipped that part of the journey. They've skipped that part of the process and gone straight, talking about what we were talking about earlier on, to a destination. They've jumped into a job role that society told them they better get into quick, otherwise they're going to miss the boat. They skipped the part of the story where they have to figure out themselves. But it's a crucial part. It's what's going to make them a great team player, a great part of any business. And if I'm employing people in a business, I want those people who have taken the time to understand themselves best, to figure themselves out, to know the kind of person that they want to be. I believe that we as a society need to help them do that more by taking away some of those pressures, by opening up their minds to greater possibilities than the very restrictive list of jobs that we present to them as available choices. My job was never on that list. When I had my careers guidance at school, no one ever told me I could be a Formula One mechanic. Luckily for me, I saw it. I lived near Brands Hatch when I was growing up. I could see motor racing happening. I saw that Formula One was a thing and there were people doing those jobs. It was populated with human beings. The people that burst out the garage to do the pit stops that I became utterly fascinated with were human beings. Somebody has to do that job. These guys were doing it. So if they're doing it, well, maybe I can do it as well. I was lucky that I saw that happening in front of me. Many people don't. Many people don't see beyond what opportunities would present to them from the careers guidance at school or at university. And I'm sure many people as parents do the same thing. We can open up our children's minds by freeing up some of the restrictions that they might feel under from society or from the education system. As parents, we can definitely do that. And as employers, even if we've employed somebody already, we can definitely take away many of the restrictions that many big companies operate within. You'd be amazed how many successful companies could be so much more successful if they realise that the people in their business are the most valuable resource they have. By allowing the free flowing of information in all directions around all the levels of that company, allowing ideas to come from anywhere, 
giving people the freedom, making sure they know they have the freedom to suggest something, to question something, to ask something, to take some time to learn something. Formula One has become better at this in recent years, but still has quite a long way to go, in my opinion. I get a lot of messages from people asking for advice on how to get into Formula One, how to sort of follow a similar career path to the one that I had. And look, I've done lots of responses. I've done videos on it. I have written to people. I have called people up. I've sent them voice notes. I've given lots of advice, the best that I think I can in that space. The biggest piece of advice that I often give to people if you're just out of the blue cold calling a Formula One team is to find a way to stand out, is to make your application or your letter or your email different to the rest. Show a bit of personality. Because if you have personality, if you know what your personality is, if you know the, the kind of person you are and can show that in a positive way through something you could write or something you could do to grab the attention of that Formula One team, it might just get you over that first step. It might get you over the first hurdle. If everybody else is simply writing to them saying, I've got these qualifications, I've done this job for the past two years, I've got this level of experience that's all great. There are thousands of people with qualifications and experience. There's no one else like you. So what is it about you that makes you different, that makes you stand out? How have you overcome adversity? How have you helped somebody in the past? What have you totally messed up yet learned from and bounced back? Those kind of things would grab my attention. They'd give me an insight into you and your character. Things that probably most other CV covering letters simply wouldn't do. I want to know where you went on your last holiday, but more importantly, why you chose to go there. What did you do when you were there? What's the most recent big purchase you made and why? Why was that important to you? Those are the kind of details that you would have come out of a conversation if you were in a room, if you were in a bar with somebody, if you were just chatting over a pint those are the kind of details that you'd begin to learn about the other person. And those are the kind of insights that I want to learn about a potential person that I might be thinking of employing in my business. I think the most important thing that my daughter's response to my question flagged in me is that obviously this is the kind of question, the way we should be phrasing the questions to our younger generation. Not what do you want to be, but who do you want to be? But it's just as valuable a question to ask yourself and frame it in that same way. Don't ask yourself, what do you want to be? But ask yourself, who do you want to be? I mean, what a great question that is. Can you answer it? Because that is the sort of question that can help lead you to defining some values that you might want to lead your life by. Defining the sort of person that you might aspire to be. What sort of things would that person do if it was you? What kind of character traits would you like to see in the person you'd like to become one day? So asking yourself the question and framing it that very specific way, who do you want to be, not what do you want to be, I think is a really valuable place to start when we're thinking about building the next generation, employing the next generation and creating the next generation if that's us. 
Okay, well, our hour has come to an end. And whilst I could have gone on for hours and hours and hours with the number of topics that seem to have cropped up in my life this week, I am going to have to leave it there. Uh, Before I do go, though, obviously, I want to say a big thank you. If you have found something of value, anything at all, in this podcast or in any of the previous ones, if it just sparks a different train of thought that might get you to a different place or get you thinking differently, well then please just take a moment to like the podcast, to follow or subscribe, but particularly to share or to write me a quick review. Give me a five-star rating in the Apple Podcast Store. I would really appreciate it. It would make a massive difference to me and to the success of this podcast, how far we can grow it and how many people we can reach with it. Spreading this message engaging in the conversation which is what I want you to do let me know what you think write me a message share it on social media tag me in it just tell a friend anything you could do to spread the word about the pit lane life lessons podcast I'll be very appreciative of very grateful for so look thank you very much everybody I hope whatever it is you're doing this week you have a great one and don't forget as ever just do your best to do the right things and to do the things right. Ta-da.